We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On today's podcast, we're continuing the final installment of our opponent preview series. I've got Chris Lee of VandySports.com and Southeastern14.com to talk a little bit of Vanderbilt. We got into, of course, Vanderbilt not necessarily being a, uh, a perennial threat in the SEC East this year or the SEC in general. We got into a lot of big picture stuff with first-year head coach Clark Lee, kind of the decline of the Vanderbilt football program since James Franklin left, the administrative reasons for that, uh, you know, some of the stuff that happened off the field under the end of the Franklin Franklin era in Nashville and how that kind of turned the tide in terms of how the administration views football. Vanderbilt's a very unique situation. It's not like the rest of the SEC uh, in terms of the relationship between the school and athletics. There are some similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. So we got into that. And then we got into, of course, some on-field stuff as well. They had a pretty good quarterback, Ken Seals, last year. Didn't have much to work with. Kind of their prospects for year one. And uh, if Clark Lee is going to build this thing back up into a competitive program, how he's going to do it. Um, kind of got into some of the stuff that happened last year at the end with Derek Mason, um, kind of the Sarah Fuller thing at the end of the year and a number of different topics. And then we also have Brian Haydad, my old radio cohort, to come on after that and talk to Mississippi State to round out our opponent preview series. Will Rogers, um, you know, what receivers can step up in year two, what that transition on the offensive line has looked like, because that was really the biggest hindrance to Mississippi State's offense last year and what expectations should be for Leach in year two. So I thought they were a pair of good conversations. I know it's game week. I know you are probably clamoring from some, for some Louisville and Ole Miss content. And I have that coming your way. So good news there. Consider this one, even though it's the Wednesday show, a bit of a bonus podcast, because I just thought if I'm going to do the opponent preview series, I may as well finish it. So I figured I'd use this show to do that. And then I'm going to have four podcasts this week. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to have a lot of Louisville stuff, get a good Louisville preview. And then Friday, I think we're going to do Mailbag Friday, some picks. And then I found a guy to uh, that did a film study for Stadium on Louisville quarterback Malik Cunningham. And I think that'll be a really enjoyable conversation and give you a little bit of insight heading into the matchup. So super pumped about that. I can't decide if I'm going to run those two on Thursday and then do mailback Friday and do some old Miss stuff on Friday or mix it up. But we will have four podcasts this week with a lot of Louisville Ole Miss preview content. So that's coming tomorrow and the next day. Just consider this a, uh, a bonus podcast from yours truly finishing out the opponent preview series one last preseason pod. So 
But before we get to Chris Lee first, we have a new sponsor on the Rippy Rides podcast. It is Skybox Butlers, not to be confused with Skybox Sports Picks. Skybox Butlers is a service that offers the placement, purchase and placement of beverages in luxury seating at Vaught Hemingway Stadium, the Grove, Swayze Field, and the Pavilion. Their whole goal here, Skybox Butler's whole goal is to make the game day experience more enjoyable for you, and they can acquire any needed beverages and other items requested. Put it in your locker. They can put it in your cooler in the Grove. They can put it in the luxury seating at, like I mentioned, all three big sports stadiums, and that is going, it's going to make life easier on you. They are a service run by two old Miss grads. I've known both guys since we were kids. Great, uh, great idea. Great concept has really helped a lot of people out. They've been doing this for a number of years, and now they are a sponsor of this podcast. I'm really excited to have them on board. It's really simple. Go to skyboxbutlers.com. You can put in your order through there, so you can go you know, game by game basis. I think it starts at 50 bucks a game, uh, whether that's the Grove, the state, either, either all three of the stadiums will start with football, obviously and then on to basketball and baseball, or you can do season long. They've got SEC series options for baseball or every weekend series or every game, really whatever, whatever your kind of old Miss attendee status is, they can help you out with that. And so you don't have to worry about going to get your groceries, beverages, we'll call it, and putting it in your luxury seating. I know there's a truncated window of time where you're allowed to do such a thing and they will handle it for you. Particularly if you're coming in out of town, this is a game changer. New this year, Skybox Butlers also offers a condo concierge service. They will deliver beverages and groceries to your condo. They'll change your thermostat uh, to set that to cool for when you get into town. So they will hand, turn and key, deliver groceries to your condo as well as a service. So check those guys out, skyboxbutlers.com. I know I wish my parents utilized this when I was in college. I used to have to go stock the locker for them, kind of you know, leave class, rush from class to go get that done. These guys are going to take care of it for you. It's really easy. You can go onto their website. You type in your name, your number, your email address. You can even do it from there and just write, like, write in the number of items that you need and where you need them placed and go from there. Or if you prefer to speak to someone over the phone, you can just call Skybox Butlers at 601-850-8932. That is 601-850-8932. Or check them out at skyboxbutlers.com and go ahead and start your order from there. Great service, great people. And know it's going to come in handy as people are coming back to the Grove. You're going back to the games this year. Things are going back to normal. Let them handle all of your uh, game day beverage needs. Wink, wink. So check them out, skyboxbutlers.com. Come, thrilled to have them on board. Anyway, without further ado, we're going to start here with Chris Lee talking some Vanderbilt. All right, we now welcome on Chris Lee, publisher at southeastern14.com, host a podcast there. They do fantastic college baseball work, which I know many of you guys appreciate. Also, Vandy Rivals Network, vandysports.com, continuing our opponent preview series with the Commodores up next, Ole Miss's penultimate SEC game. Chris, I really appreciate you joining us. You bet. It's always fun to come on with you guys. Have so much respect for the people at, at the Ole Miss Rival site. There's some of my best friends in the business. You guys really do a great job. And, you know, we're talking baseball before this a little bit, too, which always lights my fire. So I think this will be fun. Absolutely. And I know it lights Chase's fire as well, but you're exactly right. Great guys. They gave me a hell of an opportunity. This has been, I think, a couple of three, two, three months now with the podcast and everything being in the Rivals kind of umbrella or Rebel Grove umbrella, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been awesome to kind of see this thing grow. So 
absolutely a, a huge fan of the Rival site and particularly the work you guys do at Southeastern 14. I know we were talking a little bit right before we started recording. As SEC baseball continues to grow, it's severely undercovered, particularly at the regional level. And I feel like you guys site kind of hit that niche perfectly. And I really enjoy the content, enjoy the podcast. And it's uh, definitely filling a need. And, you know, hopefully – you know, maybe some more competition pops up because, you know, the more coverage, the better because yeah. the sport hopefully is only going to continue to grow. Well, if your audience is sitting out there wondering what is a, a rival's Vandy publisher doing running an SEC site too, it's I just have loved SEC baseball and just baseball in general. I'm a Braves fan in the major league level, and I'll be probably staying up late to watch them against the Dodgers tonight. And and uh, But I just love the the passion of the SEC – uh, I've been going to, to games, you know, at Hawkins Field at Vandy for close to 20 years now, and you just get to really appreciate the other teams, and it's so much fun to see guys. Like, I, I remember seeing Lance Lynn pitch at Ole Miss way back when, and Drew Pomeranz, and just seeing how good those guys were, and they're still pitching in the bigs to this day. It's so much fun to watch guys like that you know, grow up and, and, and pitch in the majors, and sometimes it's even – the guys that are great players that don't make the majors, it makes you realize how tough the sport really is. But one reason I started this site is just think that on a league level, some of those sports, and of course we're going to do football too, but baseball and basketball are just so undercovered on the league level for what they are. I think the league deserves more than it's gotten. And I think if you're a, a baseball and a college basketball fan, for sure in the SEC, uh, we're going to bring you a lot of stuff this year that you're not going to find other places. And we have fun with it too. Absolutely. It's crazy because you think like SEC football and they're obviously known for putting a lot of guys in the NFL and, you know, you get the graphics every year on the internet of SEC players versus all other conferences. Baseball is the same way, almost to even a higher volume. I mean, I was only covering Ole Miss baseball full time for, I guess, like four and a half-ish years. We'll call it five, but even now seeing that it's kind of in that sweet spot where all those guys I watch, you see them coming with the bigs, Alex Lang. I mean, I could go down the list. It's like watch him pitch, watch him pitch. The talent you see on a weekly basis is really just kind of insane. Well, and I'll go a step further. The, the team talent too sometimes, like Kentucky, you don't think of Kentucky as one of the better programs in the league. In fact, you usually think of them as one of the two or three worst. Kentucky's won the SEC a couple times in the last couple of decades. Uh, Tennessee's been the, the, the thing that everybody kicked around for a while. The Vols made the College World Series last year. Uh, Missouri hasn't done much in the SEC, but Max Scherzer is a Missouri alum, and they were good before they got in the SEC. And Texas A&M has had a, a long, great tradition. It really is amazing, not just the players, but how many good teams there are in this league. And, you know, you, you see a league that sent, what, eight or nine? I can't remember how many ever last year uh, to, to the – or to – excuse me, to the NCAA tournament. And you had a couple other teams like Georgia, if not for injuries, it would have been right there. And it's just – it really is not just the players you see, but there's a lot of great programs in the league too. And even the ones you don't think about are pretty good. Yeah, it's crazy. And the, the way team – like even schools with, that end up having pretty good talent, particularly from like a top-end pitching standpoint, just get buried because that's not yeah. enough. Like, I mean, they, I think of those Tanner Houck Missouri teams where they didn't really have much of a shot, but, I mean, that dude's certainly going to be in the bigs one day. So it's – it's, it's awesome. I, I love the work you guys do there, and spring will be here before we know it. Kind of transitioning toward football, as we look at the 2021 version of the Vanderbilt Commodores, you know, if you just do like a basic search of you know, Clark Lee's honeymoon period, if you want to call it that, there's a lot of headlines about a 10-year plan he pitched 
to, you know, have sustained success. And, you know, when I guess you're in a spot where Vanderbilt is, I guess you can really kind of attack it any way you want because there's only way to go but up. But it's kind of interesting hearing an SEC head coach talk about a 10-year plan. I guess we'll just kind of start with an open-ended question. Take this wherever you want. What is the off-season slash honeymoon period been like for Clark Lee in terms of just trying to drum up interest and and figure out what's in the cupboard at a at a pretty bare situation? Well, first of all, to the 10-year plan, I asked him about that in the off-season. He clarified, look, we want to win as, win as many games as we can right away, but we're not going to sacrifice anything for the long-term good of the program. There's not going to be shortcuts. They're not huge on taking transfers. They consider transfers a lot of times other people's problems. Derek Mason uh, took on a lot of other people's problems in a sense the last few years, and that that's one thing that I think he's trying to differentiate. But you know, you use the word honeymoon, Brian. I think that's accurate. I think the program had fallen so far in every level that, you know, the, the bar was pretty low to clear to, to come in and, and put a smile on people's faces by doing anything differently. But I'll say this. I don't know that they've got the talent to win a lot of games this year. I'm skeptical about that. But in terms of the way that he approaches the program, the organization, the discipline, you go up and watch them on the field and there's not hands on the hips. They're in really good shape. Um, I just watched the way that he has run this program from the top down with with purpose and, and drive and, and just – a sensibility to everything that he's doing. I think it's going to be a while before he wins some games because I think the talent is suspect. But in terms of controlling what he can control and putting his stamp on things, I've been very impressed with the job he's done. Obviously, like when the job came open and you knew for quite a while heading, you know, once the 2020 season got a few weeks in that this job was probably going to come open and it is what it is in the sense that Vanderbilt, like the head coaching search was not something that was going to one draw a lot of scrutiny. Like if Vanderbilt did what Tennessee has done with their last couple coaching searches, I'm not sure it would have registered as much on a national radar, but in that sense, it seemed like it was handled pretty well because Clark Lee is probably not necessarily named that a lot of casual fans do, but when you kind of look at his resume, you sit there and go, okay, they could have done a hell of a lot worse what was sort of the reaction to landing him and how quickly did that emerge? Like, was he a front runner from the start? Like, I know he was an alum. How did that kind of play out and what was the reaction to him being hired? Well, I go back and look at it now. It's hard to see that they were going to hire anybody else. He's an alum. He's buttoned down. He says the right things. In available, that means a lot. Backing up a step, Brian, one thing I was really surprised about, you know, Everybody knows the struggles that Vanderbilt has had, and, and everybody knows last year how bad it got. As bad as it had been at Vanderbilt, they'd never gone over for a season before. And you had the Sarah Fuller debacle, which was not the fairy tale that it was spun in the national media. It was a thing that divided the team, and it was, frankly, an embarrassment to the program uh, because they had qualified kids who could have kicked, and, and they chose a publicity stunt. So you have the backdrop of all this, and – you know, when you're watching things, sometimes you get a different perspective from a 30,000-foot level than you do from the 10-foot the level. And as I watch it, I'm just going, I'm looking at how much they have wrecked this program, and I wonder what their interest is going to be. But frankly, I was surprised, and maybe it's just the fact that it's SEC money. Um, you know, anybody, even if the job's really tough, 
minimum in the SEC, you're going to make three to $4 million, right? And so I guess that's going to attract a lot of people in the first place. But they had guys who I think can coach, like Lance Leipold would have killed for the job. Will Healy at Charlotte would have liked the job. And I would have said going into this, if you can get Healy, you know, thank your lucky stars and go home, I thought that would have been about the best they could do. But they had guys interested in Clark Lee, I think could have held on in a year or two and taken another job. I think he was runner-up. Oh, gosh, I don't remember. Maybe Syracuse or somewhere a, a couple years before for a job. So I think if Clark had been willing to bide his time, something would have popped for him somewhere. But I thought that there was more interest in the job than I would have suspected. And that points to a few things. It points to the league, and it also points to Nashville, which, you know, every time Ole Miss comes to Nashville – you know, you see a ton of Rebel fans in the stands, not just driving up, but but they live here too, a lot of them. And I think it's just a – as bad as it got, I think it was still a better job than people know. People still have a belief, and I guess this is inherent in all coaches. You know, a lot of coaches think that you can drop in anywhere and win. That's the belief that coaches have in themselves, and there's probably some of that too. But I was surprised that the job attracted as much interest as it did as ugly as it got as I watched it up close. But uh, at the end of the day, I think they got a good one. Again, I think it'll take a while, but I think I think that was a really solid hire that Vanderbilt made. Yeah, absolutely. And I think backing up is probably a great way to go because I think it plays a lot into this Clark Lee story and will certainly kind of play into his future as well. And you brought up the Sarah Fuller aspect of it. And like I debated on asking you about this or vice versa, just because you know, there's so many, it turns into a very like not nuanced for, I'm supposed to be a writer. I can't think of a word like non-nuanced conversation very quickly as most internet topics become these days, but it was interesting to hear you kind of say right off the bat, it divided the team and it was not this Cinderella story that it was portrayed out of the national media. So I guess kind of a two-parter here for someone that was around the program, when did the pause? Cause I don't, I was again, first year out of covering it full time. COVID year was weird in its own right. So I just kind of felt a little more disconnected than usual. When did this like first become a possibility was Mason actually the mastermind? Like, give me the background of how this was born and how this played out. Because, again, with the becoming such a hot-button topic, the nuance in the storyline of how this actually happened, I don't feel like was very mainstream told. Yeah, and, and look, let me clear one thing right away because it does get political and polarizing. I, I've talked to players and people associated with him. Nobody had an issue with Sarah Fuller winning the job outright if she had won it outright. The problem was she didn't. It became evident pretty quickly it was a publicity stunt. Now, they had they had a background of plausibility, right? COVID had hit their kicking room. They weren't very good there. So they went and said, let's go find someone who can help us kick. Well, that's all well and good as long as you don't have other kids on the team who've kicked before, who are capable. Uh, and especially when you have kids that are already on the team, uh, maybe not playing a lot, going to practice every day. Um, the, the tryout from the start was no tryout. They were told she's our kicker. That's when I think he really lost the team. There were kids on that team that had kicked in high school. There was one who was working out locally at night, uh, playing another position, but preparing to do it. He'd gone to high school locally and was ready to step in and help the team. When they brought her in and basically said, she's the kicker, there are no tryouts. That's when you had players that started smelling a rat. Um, she made it worse when she showed up. Um, I think she practiced on a Tuesday. 
Um, I don't remember if they had practice on a Wednesday or not. Thursday, uh, she begs out of practice an hour early to go do a photo shoot um, when her ops times were double what you need to get the ball off. And she's hitting the long snapper in the back with kicks and all sorts of stuff that <laughs> do not indicate readiness to kick a football in a college game. And so I could go on, you know, the, the, the halftime talk that, that was – talked about a lot you know the, the the true story is that didn't go over well which is why video of that never emerged but it was one of those things that I think if she wins the job legitimately nobody on the team had a problem with it but he had players that really resented being part of a publicity stunt and if you notice um, they had gained 400 yards four weeks in a row or three weeks in a row I don't remember going into that Missouri game, uh, they got shut out by a defense that gave up 59, I think, the week before and didn't get into field goal range. Had 191 yards. That's kind of how the rest of the season went. You had kids quit the team. They had to forfeit the Georgia game in the end, you know, because of COVID. But the, the truth was they'd lost the locker room at that point, and, and enough guys were just like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to play if the coaching staff isn't going to try. So that's the real story. That's not the one that you heard in the public media narrative because it wasn't popular, but that's what happened. And so in, and in some ways, like to, to clarify, like it, I, I understand the like there's a novelty aspect and, and a, a goodness in the sense that kind of wanting to make change and, you know, be the first to do something, right? And like in some senses, like if she was presented this opportunity, like you can't really blame her for taking it. And, you know, she can kind of become a role model for you know, young girls and whoever it is out there that, that may not see themselves being able to participate in football. I, I think all of that is great. But I just like, as you outlined, like the way it happened kind of underlined what could have been a decent storyline. Like you could have had her on the team, I guess, and, and just had her trying out and kind of in the mix to win the job. And I think that would have been a cool story in its own right because she's suiting up at an SEC practice. And without going too far off in the weeds into this, kind of the last thing I'll ask about this is like, what was the end goal for Derek Mason wanting to do that and be so assertive to put her in? Because I guess from my perspective, being an outsider, like he seemed like a pretty buttoned up, no nonsense guy. Did he just get desperate? Like what was, what was his desired result in all of that? It couldn't have been to save his job or was it to try? Well, that's where things get a little muddy. I'm still not convinced it was his idea, but I don't have proof otherwise. And the, the theory is it was a thing that he did to save his job. You have a school that has not been very invested in football, but it is very invested in politics. Um, and it was one of those things that the school took it and ran with it. It got a lot of publicity. Um, you know, you watch the coverage of the game. You know, nobody made mention of the fact Missouri won it by 40-something points. It was all Sarah Fuller, Sarah Fuller, Sarah Fuller. Um, I think – you know, some people think, again, it, it was Derek's last-ditch effort to win the job. I'm not convinced that it was. Um, that they've buried some parts of this pretty deeply, and I think some of us could never get all the answers. But it just, it just seemed really strange the way the whole thing went down. And oddly enough, I don't know if people remember this, he got fired the next day. Um, at that point, he'd lost the team. It didn't go as well internally within certain corners of the school as you would have thought it did. And uh, whether he thought that saved his job or not, I, I think that was – I'm not going to say it got him fired. I think that was going to happen anyway. But I wonder if it hastened the timeline just a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I just I, – I guess I find the, the local versus national disconnect fascinating because you see it in a lot of areas and a lot of different stories and a lot of different fields these days. And I guess that's, you know, just – I guess another somewhat unfortunate example because, again, I, it's – 
you, you can find empathy for all parties involved in what should have been a good thing was maybe mired a little bit in, in some eyes. But that, that aside, I, maybe I'm making a connection here that doesn't exist. But the reason I kind of asked about that and dug into it a little more is from the time James Franklin left Vanderbilt, he won at a level that no one had won there ever. So you didn't expect Derek Mason to sustain that. It just wasn't realistic. I'm not sure what the expectations were or what they should have been or how far off he got from them, how quickly. But beyond that, beyond, you know, there's that saying, you never want to be the guy that follows the guy. You want to be one removed. You know, whoever followed Bear Bryant, can't remember the guy's name, then Gene Stallings comes in. That whole, I guess, analogy but there also seemed to be an administrative shift in terms of how they valued football. They definitely seemed to read into this, whatever you want, play the game more when James Franklin was here. For those of us that don't know, can you kind of outline the timeline of that shift in Vanderbilt's administrative dysfunction and when football kind of took a from a front seat to a back seat? Well, it's been a while now, but it was a hot topic at the time. If you remember, there was a rape case involving football players, and they were yes. all Franklin recruits. And some of those kids had, had gotten in. Um, Frank, Franklin got leeway with stuff. I think that's a good way to put it. He got buy-in from a lot of places. He was getting kids into school that previous coaches could not get into school, uh, which probably did not hurt them on the football field. But – a couple of the guys, and were four involved in that, um, were under that category. And I think when that happened, the, the one thing Vanderbilt wants is don't, don't get embarrassed. At least they don't mind getting embarrassed, getting blown out in a football game, but don't have a scandal that calls the administration of the school into question or brings criminal charges or embarrassment or all the things that went with it. And, and by the way, um, you know, it, it was a scandal. It, it wasn't oh, – yeah, it, it, it was awful, and, and you'll never hear me defend any of it. But um, the point being, that was the moment where it changed. If Franklin had stayed, he was not going to get the leeway with players. And, and I, don't, I don't hold James blameless in this. I, I think James ran a culture uh, that, that was going to get out of hand at some point, and it did. I, I think one or two of those kids should have never been recruited. I think there were some red flags. And now – I don't know that it's fair to say you have red flags and it turns in that kind of ticking time bomb, but maybe it is. Um, anyway, I, I think from the moment that happened, and that happened before his last season, he lost all administrative support from the chancellor level down. They were going to start rolling stuff back, and I think the Penn State job opened at a perfect time because it gave him a bridge out that I think he was looking to take. Yeah, because that was sort of – and, again, forgive me, I was at – high school and then about a freshman in college his last year, I guess. So I was relatively young in the sense that like I wasn't in media working around and not following things as closely, but that seemed to be the first kind of card shown that, Hey, maybe this guy isn't exactly what he cracks himself up to be in terms of genuineness. And look, that's not a foreign concept in collegiate athletics. And I mean, hell Vanderbilt did a good thing. I mean, look at what's happening at LSU in terms of just kind of rampant widespread corruption and complicity where Vanderbilt had the most success they'd ever had in football. And they're like, actually, no, we can't support this. And rightfully so, because that was awful. And so I guess when you had that shift, it sounds like a dumb question, but like, what was the shift? Like what, like take me through like what, how that worked to the detriment of the football program from like how the administration handled the program. Well, you know, first of all, 
you're looking at a program um, that, that hadn't won in a while, so that's a good story. The winning is happening. The fans are coming. Uh, the school is getting more visibility in the public eye for whatever it means to them. And I, I don't know what it does, but like, Brian, I, I grew up here. For the first time, I was going around areas of this part of town, and I lived just south of Nashville and Franklin. You were seeing more people in Vanderbilt gear than Tennessee gear, and I've never seen that happen. Shit, they filled up full away sections at away games. I remember when they came I know. to this in 11 or whatever it was, they had like a full section compared to, you know, 2015, I guess it was. They barely filled up four rows. It was crazy. I agree. Yeah, he, he had it rolling. You had a black athletic director and, and a black head coach, and, and that was mentioned a lot. Uh, that's another thing that's big at the school, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But that was, I, I think, a thing – that Vanderbilt liked and celebrated uh, and liked to publicize. And I think while that was going well, it was good for everybody. The school was winning. You had more alums happy. Um, they weren't in the spotlight for any of the wrong reasons. Now, I, I think like any big football program, you have some things probably get swept under the rug. But as long as things are good, uh, the, 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 the going keeps going, right? And I, I think there was probably some of that going on. But from the minute that went public, um, and you, if you remember, it was everywhere. It was USA Today. You would go to press conferences. You'd have national writers show up that never showed up before. You know, they'd pop in to ask their question about the trial. They'd pop out. Again, Vanderbilt does not like to be embarrassed. As soon as that happened, and you've got a culture on that campus that is very anti-sports. They see sports as a distraction. Uh, they see athletes as people that don't deserve to be in school. And you got there because you're a football player and therefore you're not a legit student. That mentality is very pervasive at Vanderbilt in a lot of corners. And look, it's not just Vanderbilt, right? You find that at Ole Miss in a lot of corners where there's always some tension between academia and athletics. But it's especially true at Vanderbilt, a school that likes to view itself as an Ivy League type school. Um, I think that's who Vanderbilt sees as its peers, as Harvard and those kind of places, and not Alabama and Georgia and Ole Miss. And so I think once it got in the public eye, um, you know, most places a scandal like that gets swept under the rug. At a place like Vanderbilt, it goes the other way. And, right. and once things start to get attention, um, it, it takes away all the athletic capital that they got. I mean, I, I'm not kidding you when I say that that burned just about every bit of athletic goodwill to the ground. Um, you know, I, I still think it causes them difficulty to this day. Certainly it rolled back some of the admission standards uh, that have been put in place that helped them. I mean, I just – we could go on for two hours, but I cannot yeah. underestimate to you how much that damaged them, how much that hurt them. From that point on, the chancellor was never going to support football again. Uh, now they have a new chancellor – this time, the guy they have does, and that, that's meant everything. And I think that's what's really laid the possibility that they could win again out there, uh, that they have a chancellor that supports it and does it unabashedly. But uh, I, it really went from – it was as big as a 180 as I've ever seen for sports anywhere in the SEC, the way that went backwards almost from the moment that scandal broke. So the, the – the Franklin era is obviously ushered out, and then you get Derek Mason that comes in. So now Clark Lee's here, and, you know, the, the old cliche of starting from square one, I would say that's pretty accurate. And where, you know, when you just look at this roster and you kind of look at expectations and ability to compete in 2021, one, I think he benefits from having non-conference games because 
you know, him inheriting a 10 game SEC slate only, uh, you know, in his first year, that'd be pretty brutal. Where the cover does not seem to be bare is on the offensive side of the football. If they can figure out the offensive line, they have a couple pretty good receivers. Ken seals at quarterback for what he was and what he had to work with. I mean, he was fine from a skill position standpoint, but kind of got beat up a lot. was pretty turnover prone starting as a true freshman. They kind of have something there. So that's probably as good a place as any to start. I saw it was sort of an open competition. How much was seals actually pushed for that gig? I don't think he was ever going to lose that job. And, and full disclosure, I do a podcast with Ken every week. Um, so I have a, a built-in admiration for the guy. But nobody that watched practice uh, thought he was going to lose the job. His backup, Mike Wright, is, is a tremendous athlete. Uh, but, but he's not going to be a guy that's going to stand in the pocket and deliver accurate throws downfield, you know, 25, 30 times a game. And they've got to have that. You've got to have that to win these days. Ken, I thought, did a tremendous job under bad circumstances a year ago. He's a leader on that team. It's going to be very hard for him to lose that job. You're right. I think they do have some pieces. They've got a, a quality receiving core. I, I don't think they have, you know, say, from your neck of the woods, an Elijah Moore or A.J. Brown. They don't have anybody at that level. But for Vanderbilt, they've got eight or nine guys that might be able to play a serviceable role, which is more than they usually have. Um, They've got a running back transfer in Ray Davis from Temple, who's a good player, was a freshman All-American by Pro Football Focus a couple of years ago. But the line, oh, my goodness, uh, that has been an adventure in camp. It was an adventure last year. They get some kids back who opted out, but they're changing line coaches and schemes. Uh, I suspect they're having some issues as they adjust to that. Uh, the defense has really gotten the better of them in practice in fall camp, which I didn't expect, but and I say got the better, it was almost like that every day. So I think that they've got some pieces on offense, as you noted, but the line is a thing that threatens to undo all that. And I think a lot of us are going to be really interested to watch the first few weeks and, and see if they can even take care of business against ETSU and Colorado State. Because if you can't do it then, that's probably not a very good harbinger for what's to come. Yeah, and when you think of Vanderbilt football being you know competitive and, and good and kind of a dangerous team to play, on your SEC schedule, they've always had pretty good, like really good running backs. I mean, you go down the list, Zach Stacy, Ralph Webb, uh, another, Keyshawn Vaughn was another one. Ralph Webb is Chase's boy. I think that may be his favorite athlete of all time. Um, so they've had good running backs, but that's not necessarily in terms of returning experience. The case this year, I, I was looking it up earlier, they're down to three, four scholarship running backs. What is that situation like? And they, can they salvage anything from a talent perspective there? Yeah, and they moved James Ziegler over from defensive back, who's a true freshman, to running back uh, maybe the first day of camp, which <laughs> tells you a lot right there. It's, it's Davis, and then it's a lot of undersized guys behind them. They've got a kid named Patrick Smith, who was player of the year in New Jersey, but he was just a two-star recruit. So he's that typical guy where there's a disconnect between the production and what people like. He's a little on the small side, but it's nothing that can't be remedied. Uh, with some work in the weight room. But, frankly, they, they've got some – it's it's Davis, who's – it reminds me really, if you remember Zach Stacy, which I know you do, reminds me a lot of the way Stacy ran, low center of gravity, tough guy, uh, gets a lot of yards after contact. Not a, not a burner, but maybe can – it's a little harder to bring down the open field than you'd think. But behind that, I think there's a pretty significant drop-off. And if they lose Davis, and you always worry about that, with the back who invites – I don't know if I'd say invites contact, if that's fair, but certainly is not going to shy away from it. You always wonder, is that guy 
the guy that's going to hold up through the whole year. You add in the offensive line problems, they've got to keep him healthy. Uh, but because behind him, if it drops off from there, then I think you really get concerned. So I asked almost everyone that comes on this, like on the show, this, what's the, like, if Vanderbilt has reaches its ceiling offensively, like the best version of this to where they're competitive and they put it up enough points to stay in a few games, you know, maybe touch the four-ish, five-ish win mark. What does that offense look like? Because they have a new offensive coordinator. Like, it, it appears there's going to be some, a lot of multiple concepts. I know it's not a true air raid. It's a lot of different, like, multiple concepts, but the passing game is certainly prevalent in it. What are they going to look like? And in your mind, just best you can tell so far, what it would be the best version of this offense? What would that look like? Somebody asked me last week to do projections on points per game, and, and 20 is the name, the number I came up with, which is terrible, but it's also better than the 14 they had a year ago. Um, you know, and granted, that was an SEC-only schedule, but I, I don't know that they've got to block Brian, and right now I just haven't seen it. I, I think if they, if they can block and give Ken Seals some time um, and keep everybody healthy, you might see 25, 26 points a game because I do think they have some some players there who can help them. Uh, I like their system. I think it's they're going to be multiple. I think they'll keep people off balance a little bit. I don't think they're going to get too dialed in to run or pass. I think their routes will be varied. Uh, they'll throw short. They'll throw medium. They'll throw long. So I, I, I like their approach. I like some of their players. But my goodness, they're, they're going to have to block better because, that again, I hate to keep being repetitive, but I, I think it's accurate. That's the thing that threatens to undo all of it, and I have a lot of concerns about it, as you can tell. What, so you mentioned you do a podcast with Ken Seals. What is he like from a mentality standpoint and kind of getting to know the kid some? Because he was a pretty good player. I remember watching him in the state game last year. I was watching it on television, like at a bar or something. I don't remember it. I was like, you know, this kid's playing pretty well. Like the stat line may not show it. You know, he's had some dysfunction around him, a couple tipped interceptions. But like, this kid is not bad. Like, he's playing pretty well he's probably going to take a lot of hits this year. And I imagine, I know football players are just wired differently in general, but that could get demoralizing because like Ken Seals could probably go to, I don't know, I want to say better program, a different program that maybe has in a lesser conference or a different conference and have a little bit more success in terms of the wins and the loss column. What's he like? What's his DNA? And like, how does he not get demoralized week after week? Well, you nailed it there. He, he was going to have options if he'd pursued him, and I would not have blamed him after last year because morale there was just so bad. Um, but I think one of the things that impressed me about him, it, it was when I watched him in spring practice two years ago, he was an early enrollee. And, and, and by way of background, he was a kid who played at a high level of football in Texas, I think at the 6A level, and for a program that had traditionally been pretty poor. And I think he took him to like a 7-3 and three type record his senior year and made the playoffs. And that was a program that typically didn't make the playoffs. And so he had some experience with being – in that kind of program where nobody expected you to succeed. And so he didn't shy away from, from a situation like Vanderbilt. But when I saw him in spring practice, uh, maybe the second or third practice he was on campus, um, I, I saw him, they run on 11 on 11s, and they, they run a play from the shotgun. He's scanning the field. He throws the ball out in the right flat. And, I mean, there was a defender right there and nobody else. And then he threw it right to him. Um, there wasn't a receiver anywhere in sight, just a, a, a play that, that just was totally botched. And that's the kind of play that you watch a kid, especially a freshman who's coming in and trying to establish himself, and you're going, okay, I, I want to watch his body language. I want to see, does he get down? No, he came back, 
and he threw strikes on about the next four or five balls. That really told me a lot about his resiliency, as did last year. I mean, they kept losing and losing and losing, and yet until they tried the Fuller stunt, that offense was getting better. They were playing teams late into the fourth quarter. He was keeping him in games. He had three or four 300-yard games, despite not a lot of talent around him and a line didn't protect him. That tells me a lot about him, Brian. He, he didn't have much around him. Um, you know, on top of all the stuff with the losing, you had the COVID quarantines, you had kids going into depression. I mean, the circumstance literally could not have been much tougher. His coach gets fired before the end of the year. I love the way that he held on, and he always did it. He was upbeat. He never wavered about leaving school at the end of the year, and he would have had options uh, to go other places. Uh, but he chose to come back. You know, he's a kid who's a team leader. I just think that that tells you, a lot about his character, you know, some kids might have not wanted to do a podcast deal coming off an 0-9 season and competing for a quarterback job. He jumped right into it with both feet, and he's been very honest. Uh, I just think the way that he conducts himself, the adversity he's fought through, says a lot about him. And I think if they can see it through to the other side with more talent, he's a kid that's got a chance to, to see a bowl game by the time he's done just because I think he's, he's that good and he's that good of a leader. On the other side of the football, defensively, where it kind of went south for Derek Mason is when the defense started to slip, right? I think they finished 12th or worse two or three years in a row. I can't remember the last couple of years. And that was obviously Mason's defense. And when they had success and they got to the two bowl games, like they were pretty buttoned up defensively. They might have been the most talented. They certainly lacked probably some depth at times, but they were pretty disciplined and they made the most of what they had. What does it look like on the defensive side of the ball? Because, you know, even just looking through and trying to do some research and like season preview stuff on Vanderbilt, they lose a couple of edge guys, but like you just, you don't know a lot of these names. What is it just kind of open-ended? Take me through what the defensive side of the football actually looks like. Well, they, they were awful last year. And frankly, they hadn't been very good since Zach Cunningham left. And he was one of Franklin's players. Um, and, and they were just as bad as I ever remember them being last year. And oh, by the way, that came with Dio Dingbo who was a mid-second round pick by the Colts and might have gone first round had he not blown out his uh, Achilles. And then Andre Mintz, who was their other edge guy, made the Broncos today as an undrafted free agent. So they weren't good with those two guys who are both on NFL teams now. And I'm just watching and I'm just thinking, this may be the worst defense I ever see in the SEC that they're going to field this year. But but I'll tell you what, Brian – some people listening to this podcast would challenge that after watching Ole Miss last half decade. Well, yeah, let's, let's not forget how that game went a year ago. But um, yeah, I'll put it this way. I, I use the, the stinky fridge analogy, right? When, when you've got something in your fridge, it's rotten and it reeks. When you open the fridge, it's hard to tell what in there stinks and does everything really stink until you kind of clear that out and, and start over. And I just did not think they had enough talent. I, I just – I watched them on the back end. They don't have speed. They lost their best two pass rushers. But when, when they cleared the fridge out and you got to see them in fall camp and you got to see them in Jesse Minter's scheme, he was with the Ravens. Uh, I think he's a tremendous defensive coordinator. I don't want to crown a guy before a snap, but I just think – I watch the stuff that he throws at the offense in practice – and they're bringing people from all kinds of places, and they're totally keeping the offense off balance. Not a lot of players, but he has, as they've cleared it out, they've developed some guys. Uh, they've got a kid into Ricky Wright who was an Ole Miss commit. 
who's really going to be a player for them if he can stay healthy. Uh, they've got a kid named Anthony Orgy. He's a good linebacker. They found a couple edge guys that I think can get to the passer. And their secondary play, they're not the fastest guys, but their coverage has been so much better. Again, I don't know that they got the horses, but what I've seen them do in camp, uh, it's way more than I ever imagined them uh, under any circumstance. And, and, and I think that um, I'm interested to get into the season and see – as bad as they looked, are they going to be able to get a little bit of something out of these guys? Because from what I've seen, I, I suspect that they will. I think if nothing else, they're going to throw so many things at quarterbacks uh, and, and get to people so fast. It, it's going to force some turnovers and make some things happen. That's something they never really did under Mason. I think just in terms of just in sheer guile and scheme, that's going to make them a lot better because from what I'm seeing, the kids have grasped what they want to do in a hurry. The last time Ole Miss had a good defense, it was under Dave Womack, and they ran a 4-2-5, which is almost similar. I, would, I don't know if it's identical. I haven't seen Vanderbilt, but pretty similar. And that Husky position is huge. I don't know what Vanderbilt calls it, but the hybrid linebacker safety, you mentioned Orgy. I imagine he's probably the guy that's going to be in that position. I think a Tony Connor, to use an Ole Miss example, who would have been a first-round pick if not for a, a knee injury that really derailed him and kind of how he rushed it back a little bit. Do, do you think that do you think he has the athleticism there to be kind of a difference maker? Because that position in that four two five scheme is massive. Well, the, the guy actually is going to be Dericky Wright, who again was was okay. the former Ole Miss commit, and he's kind of a hybrid linebacker slash safety. Um, they've listed him at different things throughout fall camp. Um, sometimes on the roster he's been listed as a DB. I look today that switched into linebacker again, but he's that guy. He's looked really good in coverage. Uh, I think he can help him run. Their other linebacker on the other side is Orgy, who's, who's really good. I mean, he led them in tackles a year ago, but somebody has to lead you in tackles. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a good player. But he actually, I think, is going to turn into one. Uh, I think he can do a lot of things. He was a converted safety when he got there, so he can cover. I've seen him work out as a pass rusher. I think the way they use those two guys um, – it's really going to throw some loops into some offenses that you see. And I think also they're just really maybe better players than I thought. Again, once they had a chance to get in a scheme where they fit uh, and turn them loose, which Mason didn't always do, um, I looked up and I was like, I think those kids are better than I thought. And I think those are two players that you could see. I wouldn't be shocked if you saw one of them on maybe a second or third All-SEC team at the end of the year. Just because I think, I think in particular, I think Orgy is going to put a lot of numbers in this defense, I think he'll get a lot of tackles. I think he'll get some sacks and pressures and probably some picks. And so I think those are two kids that on a defense has been pretty anonymous. I think it got a chance to make a name for themselves. Kind of in closing, as we look at Vanderbilt's schedule, it's really interesting because I think a fair case to make is that the month of October will be absolutely massive for them. So you start with ETSU, then you go a road game at Colorado State. Colorado State seems like they, I was just looking up earlier, just out of sheer curiosity, Vanderbilt could kind of stay in that game. Colorado State returns a lot from what they had was a decent team a year ago. So that'll probably be a tough one. And then you get Stanford at home. You know, UConn's the other non-conference game. I, I would assume they would win that. So you're looking at two wins, probably with ETSU and UConn. If you can find a way to pick off Colorado State, I guess I'll throw Stanford in that mix just because it's at home. Just if you can figure out a way to go three and one, like you're – I imagine that's a raging success heading into the bulk of the SEC slate. You know, Georgia tough at Florida. But that, that October stretch that starts with UConn at Florida, at South Carolina, and then home against Mississippi State of Missouri, if you're going to pick off an SEC win or, you know, get real crazy and say two, 
it's probably somewhere in that stretch, right? Like, I don't know what Mississippi State will be in year two under Mike Leach. There's, he has a history of a jump, but the SEC is a different nature. I don't really know what Missouri is going to be. Clearly, Florida on the road, probably pretty tough. But, like, that seems like a real sweet spot if you're going to exceed expectations to really gain ground there in that month of October. Brian, I think that when Clark took this job, he didn't catch a lot of breaks. Um, they had some discipline problems that they had to weed out, including some kids who were talented who could have helped them in terms of talent. You know, they had the 0-9 season. Morale was awful. They had to, to really – you know, it's, not a, it's almost a build more than it's a rebuild. But the one place where he caught a break was that schedule. And they're going to beat ETSU in week one, even when they were – what was it, two and ten two years ago? That you know, and, and you know, the team was falling apart at the seams. They won that game by 30 something points when they played. Uh, so they're going to win that one. Then they go into week two with the Colorado State team. As I look around the country, uh, in the power rating stuff, Phantom and Colorado State are right there next to each other. They're considered almost equal. CSU returns a lot of players, but so does Vandy. So that one's almost a toss up. It's in Fort Collins. I think that'll be a harbinger game that if, if they can't win that one, you have to go, oh boy, uh, these are going to get tough to come by. But if they do get it, then they come in the next week against a Stanford program that a lot of people think uh, is headed the wrong direction. All of a sudden, maybe if you're 2-0, you get a little bit of confidence if Stanford's reeling. I don't expect them to win that game, but I don't think it's out of the question. You know, if by chance you get that, you're 3-0. Now, you get your bucket of cold water dumped on you the next week when Georgia comes here, uh, and, and there's no sugarcoating. That one's going to be ugly. But then you get Connecticut, which just got thrashed by Fresno State the other night. You know, James Franklin's team, when he got here, his first team was expected to be awful. It won six games. It went to a bowl game. And I think one of the reasons it worked out was because that February schedule was really soft and those kids got confidence. I'm not going to predict it. Um, the over-under on wins for them, I think most places is three and a half. That's pretty much exactly where I would go to. I, I, I don't have a reason to argue that. But I will leave you with the caveat that the schedule sets up in a way for them to build confidence. And once that happens – uh, you know, maybe the governor's off the top of the wins column there. Uh, you know, you could see that going a little bit further north just if that group can pick up a couple early and get some confidence. And just for clarity's sake, you, first week of November by, then it's Kentucky at home at Ole Miss at Tennessee to close out the season. And, you know, I don't know what Tennessee will be. I, you know, the game Ole Miss probably be tough, but I think Kentucky will be pretty good. But how, who knows? Like, if it doesn't go right, I mean, you always catch one team that you think is probably going to be pretty good. And by the time they get to November, the wheels have just fallen off, and you just don't really know, like, how they're going to show up, if at all. So, it's interesting. That's going to be an interesting middle part of the schedule, and that week two game will be fascinating as well. Last thing I'll have for you is, you, know, you put it over under three and a half for most places. What would be a success for Clark Lee in year one? If you get to that fourth win, like, depend, I guess some of it depends on who it is, but, like, would that be kind of a success in year one? Oh, I think if they get four, and I don't care if it's, you know, going four and one and then losing out. To me, that's a success. This program, I've covered it for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen it hit the rock bottom that it hit, not just in terms of performance, but in terms of morale. Um, last season was brutal on those kids. And, and I think just the, you know, again, not to rehash the fuller thing, but that just really showed you, um, you know, how little the school thought of football and how many people got in on that and how nobody ever stopped that before it became a thing. And I just think so much demoralized them a year ago. I think if they get to four, it's been a good season. I think more than that, if they get into late in the season and say they're, they're playing 
uh, Kentucky tough or, or Ole Miss or somebody like that or, or, or maybe beat Tennessee because, frankly, they've, that's been about a 50-50 series the last dozen years. Um, you know, Tennessee's not been very good. I don't know that the ball is going to be great this year. I think it's, it's getting some wins, but I think it is, is finishing well and maybe not winning those games in November, uh, but at least going into the fourth quarter. I think if you do that – uh, the talent pool is going to get better under Clark Lee. They're going to recruit better. Uh, I don't think it's going to get any worse than it, than it is right now. So I, I think you lock that in. You have some success knowing that in terms of organization structure and recruiting, it's going to get better. To me, that's a big win for them. He is Chris Lee. Check him out at Chris Lee 70 on Twitter. Publisher, podcast host, southeastern14.com. Check him out all fall and through basketball and baseball season. Do tremendous work there vandysports.com on the Rava site. Chris, this was great stuff. I enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you taking a minute out of your day to help us with this. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to join the folks at Rebel Grove, and thanks for having me on. And that was Chris Lee. Really appreciate his insight on Vanderbilt, kind of what Clark Lee is up against in year one. And, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a changing dynamic back among the administration towards favoring football a little bit. At least sounds like the chancellor favors it a little more. That was a really messy situation for a while, and uh, – you know, rightfully so. That was, you know, when talking about that horrible, horrible rape case that happened towards the end of the James Franklin era, that really turned the tide. But one should have been an indicator that obviously James Franklin, not really exactly the dude that he presents himself to be. And then two, that really kind of turned the tide in how the administration views football. So I don't know. I find Vanderbilt's like macro situation very interesting. Of course, I, I was not going to get too far into there too deep and was not overly concerned with what, what they were going to look like you know, on the defensive front and things like that. I just think it's a fascinating football situation because it's this academic school in the middle of the most hungry collegiate football conference on the planet. So I appreciate Chris's insight. We'll probably have him on again game week. So we're going to get to Brian Haydad next talking some Mississippi State to round out this opponent preview series. But before we get to that, I want to take a break real quick, remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Same name as Skybox Butlers, no relation. We're just getting all the Skyboxes on the Rippy Rights podcast. But you know who Skybox Sports Picks, you don't even have to ask anymore. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced bottling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Football season's coming up. Yesterday was a huge day for the Rippy Rights promo code. So thank you for all going to check out Skybox, putting in that Rippy promo code. It saved you a little money. Hope you uh, hope you bought wisely on your pick package. Uh, and I know it's going to make you some money back, but I appreciate you typing in. That lets them know we sent us. And football season is in full swing, and they could tell that from the traffic yesterday. Go check them out. They've got season passes, do a month-long daily pass. If you just want to try it out for uh, week one, I'd recommend go with the year-long all sports. You're going to make your money back and then some. They're going to lead you to profit. You don't want to pay the man. You want the man paying you. And Skybox is the way to do that. Because if you're walking in blind, you're never going to win. Vegas was not built on losses. These guys are the experts. Let them guide you to profit. Right now, if you buy the NCAA season-long picks package, you're going to get the futures picks free. You better hurry up and cash in on that before we get to week one because those futures are not going to be no good or the odds are going to be changed after week one. So be sure to check that out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY. You get 20% off any picks package. Good luck with your degenerateness this fall and go make some money via Skybox. And of course, the podcast also brought to you by 
LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg G. Greg, football season coming up. Let him go fulfill your grilling needs. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, you get, that's rippyrights.substack.com. Type in your email, get a free newsletter from yours truly three to five times a week. And discounted meats. You get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kick off your week one. Go see him this Saturday. Enjoy your Saturday. You're not stressed about Ole Miss playing. Throw some stuff on the grill and enjoy watching the football before uh, I'm sure your stomach is in knots all day on Monday. So check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Best butcher shop in the world. Oxford's so lucky to have it, and I'm honored to have Greg as a partner. So check him out. All right, here is my old radio pal, Brian Haydad, talking some Mississippi State football. All right, we now welcome on my old radio cohort, my father, Brian Haydad, uh, continuing the last installment of our opponent preview series with the Egg Bowl, the Mississippi State Bulldogs, Super Talk Mississippi, Thunder and Lightning podcast with Robbie Falk now. Haydad, what's up? Long time no uh, see, no talk to, whatever we want to call this. It's good to see you. you do your opponent previews differently than me. I start at the uh, at the end. I start or I start with Ole Miss, and I, I make my way down to the first game so that I'm previewing the first game when it's that time. There's but probably usually, a method to your madness. Mine has no method. We just rolled. I it. screw it up, and I'm I screwed it up. I'm a week off, so I should be doing Louisiana Tech this week, but I got it last week. So it's okay. I did the same thing. I uh, so I did Ole Miss's eight SEC opponents, and mm-hmm. I thought it'd be a good idea, and that it would do one a week even though there was only six weeks till the season. So if you start doing the math on your fingers, that doesn't add up. So you're actually part of a combo podcast with Vanderbilt. So uh, okay. we just had to sandwich them in. Oh. I've never been accused of being smart, as we've been told. I, I got to know who you talk. Who did you talk to for Vanderbilt? Chris Lee. So he's the rivals guy, does the Southeastern 14 for baseball. Okay. Good guy. Um, okay. But yeah, to your point, options. And there Vanderbilt. is no Mississippi State rivals person. That, that does not exist. Yeah, that site's uh, that site's just defunct. It's a barren yeah. wasteland. It's like Mordor. <laughs> so how's the uh, how's the radio show? I imagine Dick Cross still not picking up on any movie references. But aside from that, going pretty well. Incredibly ironic that you say that today. We made an Office Space reference, and he caught it, and he went with it. So that was great. I'd Later like to in the see show, the tapes though, on that, I'll believe that when I see it. Later in the show, we made a Super Troopers reference, and he did not get that one. Okay, so back to par for the court. Hey, look, Blind yeah, Squirrel yeah. finds a nut every now and again. No, exactly. So it was it, it, the show's going really well the, with the three of us. You know, you are definitely we we you got a uh, sort of a, I guess with the word would be a subtweet the other day. Uh, Richard was describing something and he's like, "That seems less than ideal." And I said, "An old friend of ours would refer to that <laughs> as suboptimal." <laughs> I'm glad the uh, I'm glad the uh, vocabulary footprint is still on there. I got tagged in by one of the old listeners uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, the Hurricane Ida forecast was described yeah. as suboptimal. So uh, we're yeah, which afterward. So yeah, we you could absolutely uh, and we will have the, our lawyers speak to the Weather Channel immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, sue Jim Cantori if that ever comes out of his mouth. He better lawyer the hell up. So. Getting into but getting down to business, Mississippi State week out from a game against Louisiana Tech. Um, it was announced, I guess, the end of last week that Will Rogers would, in fact, be the starting quarterback. You know, you could argue whether an announcement was necessary, but I think that's probably we'll go get some big picture stuff and kind of bounce around. But that's an interesting place to start because an Oxford kid, Jack Abraham, came into the program, got hurt. I don't know if you all know what the injury is. I don't know what Leach's deal on injury is, but 
just from an outsider's perspective, that seemed to quell what maybe could have been a battle. And once he got hurt, it was just kind of like, okay, this is what could have maybe been something is no longer something. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it was a concussion for, for Jack. And okay. him. He actually suffered it during the summer and it has, it's, it's, it's messed him up, man. He's, he has not been able to practice this entire month. I agree with you. I think that if Abraham had been healthy, there might've been some real competition. He's a guy who could have won the job, uh, but with him out, it wasn't going to go to one of the two freshmen, Lovertich, the uh, the transfer from South Alabama. I mean, he's five foot nine. He, I mean, he's just not he's just not going to get the job done there. So, you be a prep kid. You watch your filthy mouth. Well, I mean, wouldn't you hate him if he was a prep kid? Look, I, once I graduated, we put the the East over rivalry behind us. I am Team MAIS. We had, <laughs> yeah, we had yeah. a team on uh, we had a team on ESPN. Big things, building leaders. Was it a real team or was it one of these fake teams that's been going around? I think they I, were. I so MRA, real team. I've been to that campus before. It is MRA not a public is a library. Team. It is not an athletic facility. They have a very nice campus. <laughs> there is the Saturday game before the real show on Sunday of uh, Bishop Sycamore. So you know, God rest Bishop Sycamore's soul. I'm sure he was turning over in his non-existent grave. I want to know who Bishop Sycamore was. I've never – I'm Catholic, and I've never heard of him in church history. I, I don't um, think he's – I think that's the point. I don't think he's a thing. Aren't those named after real people, and he's not a person? Well, I mean, unless his name was like Joe Sycamore. I don't know. what you know, Sycamore could be a last name. I don't know. Um, but anyway, Will Rogers, yes, Will Rogers uh, will be the starting quarterback for Mississippi State. And if all goes according to plan, the entire single-season passing record, uh, record book should say Will Rogers at the end of this season. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point because you, you talk about weird trivia questions. If I'm not mistaken, and I don't know why I remember this, but I was watching – it was one of the first weekends I was in Dallas. I was watching the state LSU game. Doesn't K.J. Costello hold the single-game record for passing yards? Yeah. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, he broke, the, he broke a record that had held stands since 1993, and it was 544 yards. So he, broke, he put 80 yards on it, 623. Look, I'm I mean, sure he's that, a good That will kid. likely last for a long, long time. Okay, well, I was about to ask. I'm sure he's a good kid, but wouldn't it just be justice if that was broken? Like, all would right be in the world if you got Will Rogers or someone in there? It just seems unlikely that State's going to be in games like that this year. And what I mean is a shootout where everything's firing on both sides. It just I know for a fact State's not going to see the Bo Pelini malpractice defense uh, ever again. The idea of just lining up and man-to-man and just letting those guys pick you off all day nobody's running if i see that i'll i'll personally come down there and take over the play calling for the other team that was, I was you you beat me embarrassment to the, you beat me to the punch there because i was going to say next to the record books not maybe not an asterisk but maybe a parentheses lsu man coverage should get some sort of co-credit for there should it. just be that picture of bo Pelini with the cat next to the the actual that's the asterisk it, it, that's, a, that's it, it's something that Go back and watch the highlights of that game sometime. It, it's, it is incredible that that guy never says, you know, maybe I should go to zone because he's just getting torched the whole game. Didn't um, State have five turnovers? Costello threw a pick and fumbled it twice. So three turnovers. Good yeah, God. And I, That's, yeah. It could, and two of those turnovers were in LSU territory. The State could have put up 55, 56 points. And one of the and one of LSU's touchdowns was a pick six. So it's such it, a such a weird just, start to that year because like after the next six weeks, it were should have set cool. the tone. It should have told you what was about to happen. Mississippi <laughs> State goes to LSU, the defending national champions, and puts up six. Answer this, and I, I remember asking Richard this question: 
If I told you at the end of 2019, State was going to go play at LSU and have 16 carries for negative or 16 carries for nine yards. What's the final score of the game? Oh, I may have contended that, that it wasn't finished. They just called it off. <laughs> the LSU wins by like 60 points, right? Instead, State won by 10. So to probably just perfectly encapsulates that year. But one of the things kind of piggybacking off that to the Will Rogers part of it, one of the things that I found interesting about him last year and again, you could take everything last year with a little bit of a grain of salt because it's just a weird year. But with everything State was dealing with, that kid came in a really crappy situation. He took a lot of hits. And, you know, the offense undoubtedly looked better once he kind of got his, his feet under him and they started performing fairly well towards the end of the season. But, and I know he wasn't the most highly recruited kid. And obviously it seems like Sawyer Robertson at some point is going to have his handprint on that Mississippi state program. But aside from just the success, like tangibly on the field and in this statistical category, did he win over, went over the locker room, such a cliche way to put it, but he seemed to kind of have a commanding presence as an 18 year old kid in a COVID year, kind of getting the shit kicked out of him. And it didn't really seem to phase him. He seems to have a, a bit of an unflappable nature about him. Yeah, he, he's got a lot of the intangibles you want in a college quarterback. You know, and he has to sort of make up for the fact that he doesn't have the biggest arm. And, you know, before I feel like we're playing a Rudy game with him here. But, I mean, he is a talented player, but he's, sure. he's not Matt Corral. You know, he doesn't have Corral's arm or mobility or anything like that. But he is a good leader. And I, I do think that he got some respect because you're right. State's offensive line last year was just atrocious. Uh, I can't tell you – I can't be – I still don't understand how a team can only rush three against five and still continuously get pressure. But they did it. I mean, and when I say they, I mean everybody on the schedule after LSU, they did it all year long. And, I mean, even look at the Egg Bowl. State had 479 yards of offense, but they only had 24 points in that game. I mean, right. it was like they left a lot on the field. So, Rodgers, I think, did win a lot of respect for the, the way he played. Uh, you know, and there's something to be said for when he took over for Co- Costello. I, I think Costello was hurt. I think there had to have been something physical that we weren't aware of. I also think that mentally he just wasn't right after the LSU game. Uh, I don't know if something went, if, if, you know, the, the, the quick rise and fall. I mean, he went from maybe the odds on Heisman candidate after week one. There was a lot of talk of, you know, if he's going to do stuff like this, he won't throw for 623, but he's going to throw for 4,500 yards or something. And then in week two, he throws three interceptions, a pick six, State loses at home to Arkansas, and it all just falls apart for him. The next week, they lose 24-2 to to Kentucky. I mean, that's, that's tough. It's tough mentally. So, I think Rodgers coming in and sort of picking up the pieces. And I also think, you know, that game at Georgia where State travels to Athens uh, with 43 guys, I, I think whatever attitude problem State had sort of died that night. I think that before that, there were definitely some locker room issues. But when you take 43 guys over to play a top 10 team on the road, I mean, it's basically if you're not bought in, why would you go? So I think that Rodgers being the the quarterback in that situation, everybody sort of rallied around him. He had one of his best games against Georgia uh, of of the season. I mean, against a really good defense. So, yeah, I I think Rodgers is definitely the unquestioned leader of this team. It's going to be can he make the throws that he needs to make this year for State to be successful? That was kind of where I was going next in terms of last year, like – because it was interesting because you you have this half like you have the first game happen and then like there was never going to be a whole lot of nuance in terms of like 
national media coverage, you know, casual fans watching, whatever the case may be for the Mike Leach thing. Cause when he got hired, it was can the air raid work in the sec and he's the greatest coach in the history of football after week one. And then they have three, four tough weeks in a row. And it's like, this guy's never going to work. There was never going to be much nuance to begin with, right. but I'm curious as whether it was you or gauging the temperature of the fan base, as bad as it got at points at last year, what was kind of the turning point in terms of, okay, you're starting to see these seeds planted. Was it the Georgia game or did that happen quicker than that? No, it was definitely the Georgia game because, you know, before that they played uh, Vanderbilt and were poor in that game. They I won, remember that game. That was bad. Vanderbilt was pretty consistently stopping Mississippi State. The problem was Vanderbilt couldn't score. Um, and then they had a COVID cancellation. Uh, they were supposed to play Auburn. That got pushed back uh, past the Egg Bowl. And so they had the, 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 I guess that week, an extra week off. And that's when they, you know, they made the decision. They had to make the decision to play because the SEC would have let them out of it at 43 teams or 43 players. So, yeah, when they went over there, Rodgers was really good. Jaden Wally was really good in that game. That was sort of his breakout game. And he was good the rest of the season. Um, defensively, they were pretty good in that game. Just Georgia just had a lot more talent and state was undermanned. Uh, I feel like if State had played that game at full strength, I mean, they only lost by seven. I don't know that they would have won, but I think it could have been even more back and forth than, than, than it was. The Egg Bowl, I feel sort of the same way. I mean, Ole Miss at home against that offense, it's tough. But at full strength, I think State could have maybe made a couple more. I mean, think about some of those, those throws Corral's made. Those, those guys were third-string safeties out there that he's finding matched up with Elijah Moore. I mean, literally <laughs> almost anybody could, could win that matchup. Um, you know, you think back to that game where, where Austin Williams fumbles on the on the one-yard line. And, I mean, that's a 14-point swing. State's going in to tie the game. Instead, Ole Miss gets it, takes it back over to their side of the field and scores on the next play. And that's it's a 14-point swing, and State was playing from behind the rest of the day. So, yeah, the, the Georgia – basically that COVID cancellation of the Auburn game allowed the team to come together at some point. And for the, from that point on, I thought they played – Pretty well. I mean, they, they went, you know, well, they would have gone two and three in that time, but a close loss to Georgia, a close loss to Ole Miss. They didn't play good against Auburn, but then they beat Missouri and win the bowl game. So, as in kind of looking forward, as we get beyond the quarterback position, the offensive line, as we mentioned earlier, was atrocious last year. And, you know, I don't think it's 100% a talent thing because they wasn't great up front. Like, if you just kind of look at what those guys were, but it wasn't awful. Like, they shouldn't have been that bad, but it's, it's, it's the draft. When you talk about the drastic change of the Mike Leach thing, everyone thinks of the air raid aspect of it, but it's also probably more so than anything, the unique way they have to play offensive line and the unique offensive lineman that he recruits. And you know a hell of a lot better than I do, like what exactly that is, but I do know enough to watch it on TV and know, okay, that's different than what George is doing on the offensive line. And so what is that if, as they inch closer toward his ideal offensive line, where are they in year two? Because I imagine they feel pretty good at, with cross at left tackle. You've got Cole Smith at center. Like nope. That's a decent start because you could piece together some decent guard play, particularly with the way that offense is run. What does mm-hmm. the rest of that offensive line look like, and how close are they to looking more like a competent offensive line? Well, it's funny. Cole Smith is not starting at center for Mississippi State. He's a, he's a backup this year. So he, he, Really? He, so who's starting for him last year? Did uh, he, Quinston, he, start, he started uh, – I think nine of the 10 games at start at center, but he's okay. That's what I thought. I knew I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Here's what Leach wants. He wants tackles. And if you look at state's offensive line this year, outside of sharp at center, the Quinston sharp is the starting center. 
all four of these guys are tackles. Charles Cross is a tackle. Cam Jones played a good bit at right tackle last year. Uh, Cotravius Johnson, dollar bill, started at right tackle last year. And Scott Lashley, the transfer from Alabama, is a tackle. So State's got four tackles out there and a center. And when you look at the, the, the offensive lineman that he's recruiting, they're all 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, they look like offensive tackles. That's what he wants. He wants guys with wingspan who can cover those wide splits that he, he's throwing out. State's offensive line last year, I mean, it was just bad. Bad, bad, bad. And, and, and like I said, it makes you question. I mean, you, it, even somebody who doesn't understand football would ask how three guys can whip five guys. Doesn't make any sense, you know, logically when you think about it. This year, you know, if they're not better, you know, it doesn't really matter what Will Rogers and what the uh, the receivers are doing. It, 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 won't, it won't make any difference. So everybody's eyes are sort of on them. I think they'll be improved. Cross is a stud. That guy, if he puts it all together, can be a as, as, as a top 10 pick. He's not Laramie Tunsil, but he can be a, a high draft choice. Uh, no question. I mean, maybe more of a Michael Ower would be, be a way to put it. Uh, for for the Rebel listeners. So he's really, really good. I think that Lashley can be good on the other side. I think that the, the guards are interesting because, like I said, they're both tackles. But they're both, you know, think about how this – think about the recruiting, right? These guys were recruited to run Dan Mullen and Joe Moorhead's off. Right. You couldn't come up with the worst, the like football, Especially Mullen. I mean, they just wanted to run up the middle, you know, 60% of the time. Uh, and now we're saying, okay, now we're going to throw the ball 80% of the time. So there's definitely, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the fact that they have some talent that they aren't just completely lost out there. Cole Smith will be the first backup, if I had to guess, uh, along with Nick Jones, who's a JUCO guy. Uh, there's a true freshman, Albert Reese, another, you know, six foot seven, 290-pound, 300-pound kid. He's a big tackle, but he'll play some inside-outside. So that's what Mike Leach and, and the offensive line coach Mason Miller want. They want tackles who can play anywhere on the line. You know better than anyone else that, like, the impatience in college football with all the money at stake, like, it's a win now and a results business. And the days of coaches getting four years in hell, in a lot of cases, three are, are, are largely over unless you're showing you're got two. going in the right direction. But there has to be some balance there because you're talking about a drastic change up front in the offensive line. And if there's one place that's next to impossible to plug and play in college football, it's on the offensive line. So, like – in terms of whether it's Cohen or just the average guy on the message board, how do you think people are kind of handling the, the balance of, okay, of course you don't want to go out and go three and nine this year, but there's also going to be need to be some patience with this because yes, transfer portal makes it a little bit easier, like kind of the way that's changed, but it is going to take three ish, maybe four before that offensive line looks like Leach would prefer it to. I think that they just need to be better offensively this year. If you do that, the wins will come because defensively this team's going to be pretty good. I mean, just if just six and six and getting to a bowl, everybody is fine with that. But you've got to start looking more like a Mike Leach offense. You've got to have some more big plays in the passing game. You can't you can't win six games twenty one to seventeen. People people aren't going to accept that with Mike Leach, and that would put him on not a hot seat, but there'd be pressure. Uh, the next year and there'd be pressure on John Cohen because honestly I mean if Leach doesn't work out that's two football coaches that John Cohen's hired that he's had to fire and I mean are you I mean you, you've worked in business if somebody makes two hires and they both fail are you really going to let that guy make the third hire for sure I don't know I don't, well you might you know no no no, no 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 I, I mean I'm agreeing with you like I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean business is a good analogy but just in football like, ADs don't always get a third half the time they don't get a second 
Yeah, I mean, the football hires – I mean, and you think about Mississippi State, you know, and how much baseball is loved here, and they just won the national championship. And so Cohen gets a ton of credit for hiring Chris Limonis. But if, if a third – a second football coach fire, you know, is, is fired on his watch, that's, all that, that's not a good thing for Mississippi State. So I think there, there's – Cohen's going to give Leach every opportunity because he knows they're kind of tied together. As far as the fan base goes, though, if, if, if State loses some games this year, but Rodgers is throwing for 325, 350, nobody's going nobody's gonna to complain too much. It's going to be like, all right, as soon as he continues to get players, uh, we'll be okay. What's the running back situation going to look like? Because Marks is a really good player, but like, mm-hmm. as I say, running back situation, what would an ideal run game look like for State this year? Because there's kind of this myth that, that Mike Leach doesn't run the football and some of that's hidden yardage and stuff like that. But like that actually is a pretty integral piece of everything else on the perimeter working cohesively is them having a pretty good run game. And as someone who drafted Kyle and Hill in their fantasy league based off some uh, stuff I'd read throughout Packers camp, couple preseason games, Like, you know, that always got made out to be a character thing, but I imagine he probably saw what the offensive line looked like. And it was probably nothing more to I'm good. Like, no, thank you. Like COVID year can't go home. All this, like it it almost was more was made out of it than simply like, this is not a great fit. And I don't have another year of eligibility. Like maybe there was more to it. I I see the look you're giving me, but like the, the fact that the offensive line was what it was and he was going to have to run behind that could not have helped. There was more to it. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, but you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I'm sure he saw that and thought, man, well, you know, what am I doing out here? Um, you know, if State could average 75 to 80 yards rushing a game, they would be rolling, I think, at that point. Because I think they'll average, you know, 320 to 350 yards passing a game uh, if, if things go correctly. Uh, I mean, now we're talking about 430, 440 yards. I mean, that's a lot. That's plenty of offense. You're, you're doing just fine with that amount of offense. Um Marks is good. I like Dylan Johnson a lot. I think they're a good combo. Marks is a little shiftier, can get to the outside. When it is third and two and you do want to run, Johnson is a better option for that. They can both catch the ball. I mean, Marks caught 60 passes last year. He set an an MSU record for a running back. The problem is he caught him for 300 yards. Almost every catch he made was his back was to the defense. It was the final, you know, it was the check down. And by that time, everybody's rotated over to him. It got to the point where it was just sort of a joke where nobody would be open, so they'd just check it down to Marks, but he already had two linebackers standing there sort of waiting on him to catch the ball. Got to change that number from, you know, four point, I think it was 4.8 yards a catch. That's a good yard number per carry. That's a terrible number per catch. That almost needs to double. Uh, same with Johnson. They didn't, you know, those guys need to average eight or nine yards a catch. If they can do that, you know, they're going to they're gonna be plenty successful. If those two guys combine – rushing and receiving for 1200 yards 1300 yards that's that's too, that's 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 going to be really successful for, for Mississippi State I think who's a guy that we're not talking about at receiver right now that could potentially become a pretty good player or a pretty productive player in Mike Leach's system because I think there's a little bit of a myth to the fact that you have to have A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf type receivers in Mike Leach's offense. You just kind of have to know what to do. And I imagine being good in space is probably more in like in conducive to this Mike Leach offense than anything else. You know, you've got Jaden Wally, Rufus Harvey, Austin Williams. The Peyton kid went to Tennessee, right? Right. That's correct. Yeah. So like who amongst that group as your second, third, whatever the case may be, do you think could end up having a productive year where you're like he had how many yards? Probably the number two guy would be Makai Polk, the transfer from Cal. 
uh, who had a tremendous training camp. I mean, every time we went out there, he was in the end zone. He was making making plays. He'll play on the outside uh, and be – I think he'll be a big red zone target for Mississippi State. I mean, he's just a little more polished coming from the Pac-12, Pac which is already a passing league. Uh, he'll, he'll be a big player. Uh, there's another transfer, Jamire Calvin, who comes from Washington State. So he, you know, has the experience, played under Leach. Uh, he's going to be the other starting slot receiver. We'll see if the other one is Austin Williams or Jaden Wally. I don't know who it's going to be as we sit here today. And then Tulu Griffin, the uh, I guess he's a – technically he's a freshman still uh, from Philadelphia, Mississippi, a speedster, which is interesting. And we were talking about him today on the radio show. He's 5'10 and 190, and you think, okay, he's a slot guy. No. He's an outside guy. Uh, he plays the same position that Malik Heath does. So, But he has the speed to take the top off of defenses. He's probably State's best deep threat, uh, and he'll be a big factor in the return game as well. Yeah, the, you talk about the COVID year and then having the red shirts mixed in. We're going to see some 21-year-old freshmen here in a bit, and that would have worked out real well for my college career, sports be damned. If I could have been 21 as a freshman, we'd, uh, we'd have, we might not be standing here. They got a lot but of 21-year-old seniors at Bishop Sycamore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. What is real? What, so whatever, whatever you saw from Will Waters last year, whether it's, you know, rapport with the receivers or whatnot, in order to be successful in Mike Leach offense, what is one thing that kind of sticks out to you that he needs to improve on? And what is one thing he caught on pretty quickly? That's like, okay, he, we have something here. This is a fit. He did a better job of getting rid of the ball quickly. I thought state was better up front when he came in because he got rid of the ball quickly. Costello, would not get rid of the ball. He also did a better job of running the ball. And what I mean by that is there were times where he would take off and just scramble. Costello would just stay in the pocket and stay in the pocket and linger and try to find the guy, and he couldn't do it. There were times last year where State was playing where I was just sort of like, just put Garrett Schrader in. Let him yeah. run. If they're going to drop eight, let him run. They'll come out of it after a few plays, I promise. But, you know, Schrader would just not, not cut out to run the Mike Leach offense. Um he needs to work on the intermediate throws. You know, the, the deep ball really isn't that huge a part of this right. offense and sort of a misconception. But you've got to be able to make those 15 to 20-yard throws, those square ends, uh, those, those deep curls. You, he's got to be able to make those. If he can make those, throw, those throws accurately, he'll be just fine. Mississippi State loses Errol Thompson defensively, and they lost a couple guys that draft. But, like, you return enough to where it's like, okay, like, if best – like, you know, best case, like, if this defense is good, it could still be a top 25 defense. Like, the cupboard is not bare. It's not like the Ole Miss situation where they probably will be improved, but you're still just wondering if there's enough depth for them to improve to a level that will, you know, translate to – three, four more wins or to take some sort of seismic lead. Like State has a lot of depth built up. And, hell, you could take that back to, to Mullen to some degree, but Moorhead recruited well as well. Like there was never really any sort of defensive drop-off. They got right. the defensive coordinator hires right. I'll go a basic question first. Strength, weakness of this defense. What are you most concerned about and what do you feel most comfortable about on the defense? It's, it's kind of funny. I have the same, same sort of the same answer. I think State has two of the best cornerbacks in the country. Emmanuel Forbes and Martin Emerson. Uh, they have been highly underrated this year. Uh, you know, everybody puts a lot of emphasis on Derek Stingley and Elias Ricks at LSU. I think Emerson and Forbes can match up with those guys. The problem is behind them, there's nothing. So if either one of them gets hurt, it's going to be a long year for Mississippi State. They just don't have any proven depth at corner. Uh, and at linebacker, the depth is a little suspect as well. Defensive line, you've got guys you trust there, even with the loss of Jordan Davis. Uh, he'll be out for the season on an ACL tear. You got a ton of guys at safety who have played meaningful snaps. 
You added a couple of impact transfers. Jalen Green, that's the safety from Texas, has come in and he's 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 earned a starting job. I mean, he's a former five-star recruit uh, out of Texas uh, high school football. And Randy Charlton from uh, US, UCF is a defensive end. He'll start as well. So State did a good job in the portal this year. They 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 hit three guys and they're all going to start. Calvin on offense, uh, Green and Charlton on defense. That's 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 effective trans use of the transfer portal. Aaron Brule is a really good linebacker. So is Tyrus Wheat. Uh, defensive line, Crumity, Jaden Crumity, Nathan Pickering. Those are guys that, you know, had big offers out of high school and they're playing very well. I think, and, and they, like you mentioned, Zach Arnett, that guy's just a really good defensive mind. He knows how to get pressure. Uh, he knows how to how to, how to attack the offenses. Um, I mean, I, I, that's a guy who I think will be a head coach someday, just a good young coach. Um, love, love to interview him too. Simply does not give a crap about anything. Just, you know, hi, hi, what do you think of your defense? They're terrible. And it just, <laughs> goes from there. it just goes from there. It's fantastic. Um, so I think state will be good defensively. They'll be good enough to maybe win a game that they shouldn't. Uh, but they do, they, they can't win a bunch of games the way they did last year and hope that the defense carries them. The offense has got to carry a lot more weight this year. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the corners are concerned, like the, the Forbes kid to me was a classic product of the COVID year. Cause I mean, hell, that kid broke a, I was looking up something earlier today, like prepping for this interview. He broke the interception return touchdown or tied it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Led the and country and pick sixes last year. Yeah. Yeah. Pick sixes. And like the other dudes that he tied it with was, he's tied for the career lead with three, four years left, whatever the hell he may be. Probably not that long, but you get my yeah. point of eligibility was Jonathan Banks, Corey Bloomfield, and Derek Pagese. That's not a terrible list to be on. Yeah. Like, if that's a normal year, even though state's on a bad team, that pro- that kid probably gets a little more notoriety. Like, to me, that's one of those many kids that fell victim to the COVID year where it's like, yeah, it's just not quite as many people paying attention. Yeah. And Emerson, you know, the, the analytics love Martin Emerson. If you look at like pro football focus, they have him consistently pretty highly rated. He got some bad notoriety last year because of that one play against Auburn where he was really in Seth Williams' face. And then the next play, Seth Williams yeah. catches the touchdown. But go back and watch the game. That was Seth Williams. I think he had two catches in the whole game. Emerson did a great job locking him up. He just got caught on camera at the wrong time. I mean, he's a cornerback. They talk smack. I don't know if you watch football or not. So, those two guys are really, really good. I like the safeties behind them, but man, I mean, you've got a, a a freshman who didn't play at all last year. You've got a guy who got beat out in week two by Emmanuel Forbes, and then you've got a bunch of guys who've never played. That's that's your backup corners. They they tried really hard to uh, to hit the JUCO market for a corner. They couldn't get one in. Obviously, we all know about MJ Daniels. I think that's a guy who might be playing for Mississippi State as that third or fourth corner this year if he were here, but he obviously he's at Ole Miss. Uh, they went into the transfer portal. Every cornerback that hit was entered the transfer portal, Mississippi State made a run at, and they just – and it was, it was basically because you knew you were going to be behind Emerson and Forbes. You, right. They were recruiting you to be the third corner, and a lot of these transfer guys, you know, I get it. They don't want to be that guy. So – State will just have to sort of make do. They, they need DeCamrian Richardson, uh, the freshman, to be better than advertised. I'll put it that way. Yeah, as far as the Auburn clip goes, I can't relate at all to things not being what they seem from an athletic perspective, but I imagine maybe some <laughs> others can. <laughs> so I don't know the feeling personally, but I could empathize with him potentially on that. The defensive Great. line is interesting to me because I think State will be fine at linebacker. It's 
it's to some degree where a lot of teams are at in the SEC with the offensive line. LSU comes to mind as we continue to roll through these previews. It's a bunch of dudes that you don't feel bad about, but haven't necessarily done it yet. Like it's the year where it's like, okay, we need you to be exactly what we thought you would be when we recruited. And they've got a couple of those at one time, just wherever you want to go with it. What do you find most fascinating about the defensive line heading into particularly the first month of the season? Cause you'd like to see it with a lot of these dudes that haven't gotten a ton of snaps. Well, with three guys, you know, you can sort of artificially create your own depth when you're only running a three-man front. Like, Crumity is a guy who can play end or play on the nose, which we probably played last year. And you've got Cam Young and Nathan Pickering, who's probably the highest-rated guy recruiting-wise of all of these guys. Sort of, you know, one of those guys who when he was signed, you were like, okay, this is the, the heir to Jeffrey Simmons and, and Fletcher Cox and Chris Jones. And he hasn't really done that yet. So, you know, you got an eye on him this year. Uh, Charlton, the transfer, is very good. DeMonte Russell was very highly recruited out of high school. Um, you know, he hit, he was the guy who had to find his body. He, he came to Mississippi State at six foot three and 215 pounds. Now he's 270 pounds. So, you know, he, he got himself into, you know, into being able to play. But I think he can be a, a big-time pass rusher for Mississippi State. I know the, the potential is there. I was really high on Jordan Davis. I thought he was going to be a, a guy who could maybe have seven or eight sacks uh, for Mississippi State. But unfortunately, like I said, tore his ACL a couple of weeks ago uh, in, in, a, in a scrimmage, and he's out for the year. Uh, Jack Harris is a, was a recruit out of Oak Grove who's played some, so we'll see what, what he can bring. Arnett does a good job of mixing and matching and, and finding you know mismatches. The sacks are going to come from the linebackers. Brule and Wheat will be the big sack guys uh, for, Michi- for Mississippi State. State just needs their, their defensive linemen to be good against the run and uh, you know sort of occupy blockers uh, to, to allow those linebackers and, and the safeties when they blitz uh, to allow them that, that free range of the quarterback. So we'll see what happens. But I like the group overall. I, I think they've got some depth and they've got a potential, couple of potential stars. I think Cromedy is a sure NFL guy. We'll see about Pickering. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, I think Charlton has, has some, some potential. Has State had a bad defensive coordinator since Sermonitis? Uh, no. I mean, Todd Grantham, you know, say what you make the jokes about him, but the year he was in, he's a good uh, coordinator. They were, he was good. Uh, and then, you know, Shoop, you know, the 18 defense, Rippy, you and I could have gotten out there with a bag of popcorn and just said, look, just go get them. And, and that defense was going to be fantastic. I mean, look at the NFL talent <laughs> on that, that defense, Simmons, Sweat, Abram, uh, uh, Cam Dantzler is in the NFL. Um, Mark McLaurin led the SEC in uh, interceptions as a junior. Errol Thompson's a guy we all thought might would be in the NFL. Then they just had some Gary Green's in the NFL. I mean, they just had that defense was ridiculous. I, I've I've said it many times. That team went eight and five. That was the floor. They could literally could not have been worse in 2018 than they were. That That's going to be the, one of the greatest what ifs in state history, right? If Mullen's oh, yeah. still there and the comp- continuity well, is there with that 18 team yeah. and Fitzgerald. What I always say about Mississippi State, and I say it about Ole Miss too, is a five-year cycle should go three or f- three seasons of seven, eight wins. That's that that's that's good. You have one year where maybe you take a little bit of a step back, right? Because for whatever you lose a, a veteran quarterback, a couple of linemen, and you're six and six, maybe even five and seven. And then you have you build it towards one year where everything comes together and you're gonna win 10 games. That was the year for state. If Mullen comes back in 18 with Fitzgerald and, and the guys that he had on offense, with that defense, they go 10-2. and two. There's just no question in my mind. They beat Florida because, I mean, they lost to Florida with Mullen, 
and they either beat LSU or Kentucky, one of the two of them. I don't think they're going to beat Alabama, um, and then they lose the other game of, of the one. And there's no question in my mind that that's, that was the case. Eight and five was as bad as that team could have done, and Joe Moore had found a way to do it. So Which was, it is definitely one of, one of the big what-ifs. Because it set to, that was such a weird Joe Moorhead dynamic because if you didn't pay any attention at all, you'd go, oh, eight games in year one. It's like, well, that's not what happened at all. But, yeah, I just remember that was our first year doing radio, and we got down to the Egg Bowl, and it was like make the case for Ole Miss winning, and it's like – I get that they yeah. have cool receivers, but like how in the world is Phil Longo scoring on this defense, much less, you know, any defense with the 500 record that they played. Like I, I can't, and Richard would get all pissed off. And I was like, sorry. Like, I, you I know what understand. I remember about that year was every week. Uh, what was his name? Lee Sterling yeah. would give the score and he'd say, I think state wins 45, 24. And I'm just like, you really think someone's going to score 24. You know, who scored 24 on that defense, Alabama. That was it. So, yeah, it was every week. Yeah, that defense was one of the best in the history of the SEC. Unfortunately, it got overwhelmed by how mediocre the offense was and the fact that they lost so many games. And that's probably as good a transition as any to kind of get to this last part before we get out of here. I love going down the schedule when we do these opponent previews. And, my God, is there a team that has a more important September than Mississippi State? Because – Okay, yes, they get La Tech and Starkville, but if you do any sort of research on La Tech, that team's not going to be very good. I am I haven't seen that line. I'm guessing it's going to be around three scores that in that 18 and a half. Yeah, it's, okay. So that, it's that dropped. Makes, it was 30 and a half. It's come down. Oh, to okay. It. That's actually way higher than I thought it would be. But that that proves underscores my point further. I would have guessed in the 20 range, 30 is not yeah. shocking. So, like, right. yes, it's the name brand La Tech. They've thrown it around, had some success. They don't win that game, but it sets up for an interesting stretch of games after this because you get NC State at home. You go to Memphis, and whatever you think of Memphis, that place can become a house of horrors if they're somewhat competent. And so that, to me, makes the NC State game huge because you win that game, you feel pretty good about it. I think you'll go beat Memphis in your 3-0. But the problem is if you lose that game, you're staring a road trip to Memphis in the face with LSU at A&M and Alabama after that. And when you start counting on your fingers about wins and where that's going, that could get south in a hurry. That first month seems vital. State has a really interesting schedule in that September and November are just incredible. That that, that they they define everything, and then October, like you just sort of mentioned, A and M and Alabama. Well, you know you're losing those two games. I mean, you're going to write those two off to start. State could be three and zero when they host LSU on the 25th. Um, they could be two and one. I think you can lose to NC State and still be okay. But now you're you you got to beat Arkansas, you got to beat Kentucky, you got to beat Vanderbilt, and you got to beat Ole Miss. And, and if you can do those things, you're going to be fine. But that's a lot to ask. So, you know, I I have stayed at seven and five. Uh, I have stayed. You know, I think I have them losing to NC State, um, but beating the the other teams that I just mentioned. Uh, I think they'll lose to AM. I think they'll lose to uh, Auburn. I think they'll lose to Alabama, and I, I think they'll lose to LSU. But I don't really know what to make of LSU. State could beat them. They beat them last year. They beat them a few years back in Starkville. I, I just don't know what to make of them. They could beat Auburn. I, I don't think that they will, but Bo Nix is certainly not a guy who inspires me to think, yeah, that, that's a lock uh, for Auburn. You know, And then Ole Miss, I mean, in Starkville, you and I both know that that game is always crazy. And you know, State was a, lost by seven last year in a game where they played with, with 45 guys uh, on the road. So, I mean, I, is it – crazy to think that the state could turn it around and win that a close game in Starkville? I don't think so. 
So you're right. That that NC State game is as intriguing a second week matchup that I can remember for MSU in quite some time. If they win that game, yeah, you're going to start thinking, okay, maybe this team is going to be pretty good. And if they lose, it's going to be, okay, who do they beat to go to a bowl game? And where they make up ground, you like, I don't know what to make of Auburn because again, Bo Nick's not overwhelming, not overwhelming at all. I don't you know, know me, how, man. I hate Auburn is my brand. I was about to say I probably had more Bo Nix and Joe Burrow stock in the fall of 2019. One of them turned out great. The other one just had one duck pass to beat Oregon in the stadium right behind my house. And then yeah. after that, it wasn't so great. But it's interesting the way the schedule sets up is like if state's going to make their hay, egg bowl aside, like it's the stretch of at Vanderbilt, Kentucky at Arkansas and at Auburn, the yeah. we, the, the part that makes that weird is three of them are on the road. Now, I don't yeah. think they're losing to Vanderbilt. They will go in and handle Vanderbilt. You yeah. Hope they handle Kentucky at home. I actually am a little – I know people love to get in the last, last half decade, Kentucky's become the new Tennessee of watch out for them this year. But mm-hmm. if you look at their roster, like they actually pretty have pretty good talent. They could be okay. I mean, and they, then, they handled State easily last year. Now, this year it's in Starkville. Kentucky hasn't won in Starkville, I think, since 2008. But – you just never know. Kentucky, they're well coached. They're not going to beat themselves. And I feel like you got to get one of two at Arkansas or Auburn. Yeah. Because Arkansas was kind of a mirage last year. They weren't as good as they started. And I have no idea That's what three to make and seven Auburn, team but, in the country. What are you talking about? Yeah. And like you just, you just, I don't feel like you can afford to lose those two. If you can split yeah. that, you'd be fine. So you have the prediction at seven and five. So mm-hmm. that, of course, would be a great positive sign for Leach going yeah. into year three. Offense looked great not great whatever offense look competent they're definitely going the right direction they look good like that would be a good one give me the case to where people are like holy shit i like is this are we really giving this guy a year three what does that look like not even just wins and losses just like what offensively they look like well they look like they did last year and they can't they can't move the football uh they can't protect the quarterback they're constantly having to check it down they're averaging you know five or six yards per attempt um, they can't run the football at all effectively. You know, State is not going to be about running the ball for 150 yards, but it's about can they get six or seven yards when they do run the football. They can't do that. Uh, yeah. And then the, you talk about the record. I mean, this team could go four and eight, and it wouldn't be the, the biggest surprise in the world. They beat, you know, let's say they beat La Tech, Memphis, Tennessee State, and Vanderbilt, and that's it. I mean, that's on the table if you can't protect the quarterback. I don't think it's going to be that way. I think they'll be much improved, but this team's a hell of a lot closer to four and eight than they are to ten and two. I'll say that. Yeah, for sure. And like that, and that four and eight would be also being in say four close games and you lose all four. I mean, that's nothing yeah. breaking their way outside from the obvious. So I agree. I think it's six and six, seven and five, somewhere in that range. And yeah. that egg bowl will be a huge momentum game for both programs going into the next year because that could vault Ole Miss in the same neighborhood, or maybe it's in they had a good well, year and it gets them to eight to the nine win, like. That that's a huge game for obviously. Here's a here's a great uh, here's some great analysis. That's a big game for both teams. Thoughts? Well, I mean, has it? I'm trying to remember who's the last coach to lose three Egg Bowls in a row and keep his job. If you if if State loses this year, you're looking at going to Ole Miss next year with a, needing to win an Egg Bowl. So, you know, I, I you know Leach Leach is a guy. You know, people would like to point to his uh, record in the Apple Cup. And, and say, oh, you know, he doesn't ever win the rivalry games. Well, Washington and Ole Miss are a little different from a from a talent standpoint. I mean, Washington has played in the playoff, and Ole Miss hasn't. We'll just be, be nice about it. And same with Washington State and State in terms of resources. That's not yeah, similar yeah. at all either. Yeah, state, state, and state, yeah, state is going to be able on a year-in and year-out basis to be pretty close to Ole Miss, if not be better than Ole Miss, not this year right now. 
but in the recruiting process, whereas Washington and Washington State, no chance. Always going to be a huge gap there. So, you know, Leach understands the importance of that. Uh, if he can get the win this year and just sort of, you know, recalibrate things, he'll go into next year and everybody's, everybody's on board. Uh, you know, unlike that that silly bandwagon video that State pulled out uh, after week one, people would actually be on board uh, for your team. But you know, if you if you if you lose the wrong games and if you lose to Ole Miss a second straight year, I mean, I, I'm not one of those guys who's going to say, "Well, winning the Egg Bowl is everything," because Joe Moorhead was two and zero against Ole Miss and got fired. But losing to Ole Miss hurts, and and it's it's tough to keep your job at Mississippi State when you can't beat Ole Miss regularly. Uh, so if he, if, if he loses this year, it puts a lot of pressure on him next year. Yeah, absolutely. And whether people want to admit it or not, it's the same way both ways. Like if the team that Elijah Moore dog pees against isn't state, there's a world where Matt Luke probably sees a 2020. So like it is the same both ways. So I'm fascinated to see what it looks like. He is Brian Haydad, the Thunder. And La- oh, actually, I had one more question for you. Yeah. Is there any more? Is there any faction? I know this is a dumb question, but just bear with me because my brain thought of it anyway. State goes five and seven this year. It's not a disaster, but it's not great. Maybe they have two games that don't go their way. Right. Is there any faction the fan base is like, eh, to hell with this shit. We won a national title in baseball. <laughs> Probably a few. Okay. Probably a few. I mean, that, that's been a long time coming, as you well know. Yes. Uh, from Mississippi State. So there are some fans who will ride that maroon wave all the way uh, to first pitch in February. Fair enough. Brian, hey, Dad, Thunder and Lightning podcast, Super Talk 3 to 6 every day. I appreciate it, my friend, and we'll uh, we'll chat again soon. Uh, next time Richard didn't pick up a movie reference, just shoot me a text. I got to ding that ego every chance I get. We'll do 100%. Good to talk to you, buddy. And that was Brian. Hey, Dad, appreciate his time. Good catching up with old pal. Hope you found that Mississippi State conversation interesting as they head into year two of the Mike Leach era and a really important November. That NC State game is going to be fascinating because – Boy, does it get tricky after that road trip to Memphis, followed by A&M, LSU, Alabama, or LSU, A&M, Alabama, whatever the order is. It gets tricky pretty quickly for Mississippi State, and that could go sideways quickly, or they could uh, get off to a really good start and have some confidence and maybe kind of uh, head towards that over win total. So appreciate Haydad's uh, insight on that. That's going to conclude our opponent preview series. I am the genius that decided to start that six weeks out with eight opponents plus Louisville. So uh, I thought one a week would cover it if you're sitting out there doing the uh, the old finger math. Yes, six does not equal eight. So that took me a while to realize, but I appreciate you sticking with me for that. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, if you made it this far, we're going to have a ton of Louisville stuff tomorrow. So consider this one a bonus podcast. Got a comprehensive Louisville preview coming your way Thursday. And then a Malik Cunningham, Louisville dual threat quarterback, bit of a film study or, or kind of a recap of a film study, because this is obviously an audio medium. You can't see me with a uh, watch stadium football analyst. So I'm really pumped about that. And then we'll have Mailback Friday, some picks, some Ole Miss preview stuff. A loaded, loaded week on the podcast. So I appreciate you guys for listening. It's been really cool to uh, to see this thing grow. I appreciate the feedback on the message board. It's been a thrill uh, joining the Rebel Grove community. I really, really appreciate it. And I uh, hope you guys have a safe, happy Wednesday, Thursday, wherever you may be. And uh, be sure to check out the podcast over the next two days for a ton of Ole Miss Louisville football content. We are out of here, and I will see you guys again tomorrow. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.